Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tony Dwyer joins us now. He's the Chief Market Strategist at Canaccord Genuity. Great to have you with us, Tony. Let me just start with what you detailed in a recent note here. You looked at the relationship between dollar strength, the Fed Reserve, uh, and uh, and S and P earnings. What have uh, what have you found there in terms of how those three things are are correlated? Help us uh, set the stage here for the FOMC meeting, which starts today. Well, first, David, it's a great question. Um, I think there's a perception that the dollar uh, was going to be strong last year on the back of higher rates in the U.S. And uh, what we just are pointing out is that a weaker dollar acts as a tailwind to corporate profits, and corporate profits are ultimately what drives U.S. Uh, the U.S. equity market. So uh, when you have the dollar as weak as it's been over the last six months – you actually get a bit weaker over the next three months. So our call is that the dollar is going to continue to weaken a little bit, may have a little bit of an, a very near-term bounce here, but uh, ultimately it's going to weaken a little bit more, which acts as a tailwind. And, and again, supportive of U.S. equities, the only the, the most closely correlated uh, thing to the U.S. equity market is the direction of earnings, and that remains positive. What's, what's contributing to that weaker dollar at this point? Do you have a sense from this administration of what they'd like to see with the dollar right now? You know, I would love to blame the administration. Uh-huh. <laughs> I would love to blame interest rates. What it comes down to is global economic growth. When you look at periods of a strong U.S. dollar, a strong U.S. currency, it comes during periods of fear of global economic growth. So think of the late 1990s, the Asian economic crisis, the Russian debt default, uh, the commodity price collapse in the, in the late 1990s. Those things drove a very strong U.S. dollar. The same was true from 2011 to 2014. What did you have? A very weak global economic backdrop with a European debt crisis every year for three years, Chinese slowdown in demand, which created a commodity price collapse. And again, that led to that stronger dollar. So uh, what really drives a dollar is rate, not interest rate, rate of return expectations. You raised your, uh, your S&P targets at the beginning of the month, uh, and then I guess just a couple of days ago said you, uh, you, you thought that those, uh, those might be conservative. Give, give us a sense here of why you've reevaluated and uh, indeed why you think they might be more conservative than you expected at the beginning of the month. Well, well contrary to public opinion and what Tom typically accuses yes. me of, is, which is being always bullish, always. Uh, we had been neutral in the early part of the year because the market had run too far after the Trump election. So we had uh, gone back to the bull camp on April 27th and again recently increased our estimate uh, for target for the S&P 500 because earnings are beating expectations. Our earnings estimate was too low. Uh, again, the only time you really want to be defensive or a sustained seller of stocks, you it's only when you have an identifiable recession in sight, and we're still years away from that. 
You mentioned that uh, that earnings have been. Give us. We've seen a few financials of this week. We had uh, some more industrials reporting this morning. Where do you where do you see the most uh, the the most positive uh, uptrend when it comes to earnings? Well, you have financials. Yeah, uh, financials are, are killing it. I mean, they're uh, about fifteen, fourteen, fifteen percent of the S and P, and they're twenty percent of the earnings. And that's pr- that's likely to get better as loan demand picks up with global economic activity. Not to mention regulatory reform. People forget how important it's been to the Trump administration to curtail some of the uh, onerous regulations that have been put in place, and that is helping, uh, clearly helping the banks. Is that where you think we're going to see the the most action here? I look at all that's come out of Washington, and there's been, uh, as everyone knows, plenty of of talk about what may or may not uh, happen. But on the issue of regulation, it strikes me that's where we've seen the most detail. Uh, We had the Treasury Department releasing a a very lengthy report on what it would like to do with banking regulation in particular. It plans to release more chapters on that as the the months uh, go by. Is that principally why your, your optimism is grounded in regulation? Well, it's not just grounded in regulation. What it's really grounded is that economic activity is pretty good. I mean, you know, you cannot have 5% top-line growth for S&P 500 companies, Mm -hmm. meaning, and for the listener, that means revenue growth. That's real money coming in. That's not financial engineering if you have a terrible economy. Plus, now we actually have global economic growth, and that is helpful to earnings. So when you couple that with not fearing increased regulation and increased taxes, and Dave, to me, that's really the story here. Is it's not hope that Trump's agenda gets passed. It's knowing that the anti-business agenda mm. is not going to get worse. Is allowing companies mm. to spend money, innovate, and uh, increase capital spending and productivity. Tony Dwyer with us with Ken Accord Genuity. Good morning, everyone. David Gurr and Tom Keene with lots on Washington. We have a tweeting president this morning. No, we we'll get to that <laughs> in a moment. Bloomberg surveillance. Tony, uh, we we had a, uh, a takeout the other day, an acquisition, I should say. That's a transaction in boring businesses like mustard. McCormick of Baltimore <laughs> buys French's mustard. And I don't want you to comment on the specific transaction, but I would suggest for most pros, the valuation of that acquisition was jaw-dropping. Is, is there a chance that this market is grossly undervalued and that the market within the animal spirits of consolidation and combination is multiples way higher than we can even perceive. Yes. And it, it again, Tom, I think it's very dangerous for people like me. We're great on coming on here and talking about targets, and they're all stupid. I mean, you know, it's you, I have no idea what the PE should be at. What I do know is that you want, want to follow the trend of valuations, whether it's from mergers and acquisitions, M&A as we say it in the business, or if it's from earnings or just global economic activity, you don't want to bet against the trend in the valuations. If you had done that in the late 1990s, mm-hmm. you would have sold in 1995 and missed more than a double. So I think it's important, again, to understand what drives the direction of the market, and that's the need for return. That's not changing with rates where they are. Uh, and Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it with Ken Accord. Uh, Genuity, it is good, David Gura, to uh, have a little bit of presidential humor. <laughs> and we are greeted with it within the seriousness and, you know, witness the White House correspondence dinner of X number of years ago where he really didn't want to go with the flow. A levity within a tweet. Why don't you read us this tweet? Some yeah. levity. <laughs> Next up. 
President Trump tweeting several times uh, this morning, obviously a lot of it focusing on uh, speculation about um, his his faith in uh, his attorney general. Uh, we have that. He also is talking here about uh, John McCain coming back to vote, as I mentioned at the top of the show. And then he commented on his son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, who testified yesterday or had an interview yesterday. Uh, on Capitol Hill with the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's back on the Hill uh, today to speak before the House Intelligence Committee. Indeed, we'll speak with a member of that committee in just a little while. He said Jared Kushner did very well yesterday in proving he did not collude with the Russians. Witch hunt. Next up, 11-year-old Baron Trump. Uh, So the president taking to Twitter this morning after he uh, politicized, I think you could say, talked about politics at the Boy Scout Jamboree in West Virginia uh, yesterday to the chagrin of, of many. Uh, who yeah. thought that wasn't the proper forum for, for that to take yeah. place. A lot of interest here in Tony Dwyer. We're going to come back with Mr. Dwyer and Canaccord Genuity and talk much more specific sectors uh, here within the equity markets of what finds value. You mentioned the financials earlier with a large earnings growth versus multiple, et cetera. We've heard that from a number of other guests. Tony Dwyer with us with Canaccord Genuity. Uh, David, it's always an honor when any condiments with Bloody Marys comes to the door. <laughs> Frank's Red Hot yes. Original sauce. Yeah, I did not know it's Louisiana like Tabasco, uh, but it was out of Ohio. Out of Ohio, manufactured by French's. I thought of you as I saw that at the uh, Key Foods in my neighborhood and we had our we had a, a Key weeks, Foods is weeks an art, long, that's an artisanal yeah. store. <laughs> that's hardly artisanal. It's the corner grocery store. First time you wandered Brooklyn. in. Yeah, well, but we'll there, give that there a was try. on sale alongside the French's mustard that you uh, well, yeah. talked so lovingly about last week. We buy that like the Dwyer's. We buy that, by, yeah, the, yeah, he will. He yeah. will yeah. use I, it. I will. He's not using it currently. And, and I will use an artisanal gin just to go with Thank it. Excellent. Every Thank take, Frank's Red Hot as well. Tony Dwyer's going, what are they talking about? <laughs> Tony, let's talk food stocks. <laughs> Buddy, the scariest thing is time, I know what you're talking about. Okay, General Mills just is an ultimate food stock. And I know, Tony, you're not going to talk about individual stocks. But are you finding comfort in buying boredom now? If it's Cheerios or Frank's or mustard or or whatever, General Mills, 10.4%, 10-year return, almost double-digit dividend growth. You get a big fat yield of 3.60%. Can Anthony Dwyer find comfort in conservative cash flow? No. Uh, where I would have a valuation issue is some of these more defensive-oriented stocks. Let me let me explain. Um, for the last seven years, you've had slow economic activity in the U.S. because you've had a very weak global economy coupled with just tame demand in the U.S. The U.S. business cycle is getting better on the back of less regulation and no fear of increased taxes. And the global economy is doing much better due to the financial st- or the monetary stimulus from the central banks overseas. So we have a good economy in the background. So now I think is the time to buy those areas that are exposed to more aggressive economic growth. Everyone, well, not everyone, many are invested in the quote-unquote no-growth trade, which means you buy technology because that has growth, or you buy what's called bond surrogates, those companies that yield higher than the uh, than the current bond yield. So it's kind of a no-growth trade. We're, on, we're thinking the other way should be the right way for the next 6 to 12 months, where you buy banks, those responsible for lending more aggressively to companies and households. Industrial materials, steels, coppers, those that go into infrastructure and increase capital spending uh, in, uh, by corporate America, industrial companies, and then, of course, some of the beleaguered energy names. Sorry to use beleaguered after the present day. <laughs> dig into your uh, thesis here a little bit and ask you sort of uh, what what corporate credit pressure is like at this point when you look at the credit side of things what do you see credit is the 
the question I get, David, many times is yeah. what keeps you up at night? You've been bullish for a long time. What keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night is that volatility is so low and credit is so good. Mm-hmm. If you – in the last segment on TV with Tom, we talked to a European economist about uh, – and we <clears> mentioned <throat> that the credit derivatives markets in the European banks are, at a his, are hit historically low. The credit derivatives in the U.S. banks are going back to their historic lows. I can't find any signs of serious credit stress in corporate uh, credit. There is a little bit of stress in the short-term T-bills having related Mm -hmm. to the the upcoming deficit uh, and budget talks. Uh, But again, on the corporate side, there is money made widely available. Mm -hmm. If we enjoy a correction, which is somewhat within your research – if we go down 8% or 10% or 11%, do you place cash in the market or do you flip and say that's a bad sign? Not a chance. You know, that's that's where we make a mistake. We come on here like we have any idea what, you know, what there is a very fundamental driver of what we do at Canaccord Genuity and that is unless you shut down credit Unless you make it so companies and households have no access to credit. And I challenge the listeners to just call their banker and ask if they can get a home equity line or a loan, a car, any kind of loan. It's a lot easier than it was seven years ago. So until that changes, if you get a correction in the market, it, I believe that it's a gift yeah. from the market gods until you have an identifiable recession in sight. Tony Dwyer, thank you so much. This is Dow 21,513, S&P 2470. And the S&P uh, 500. Mr. Dwyer's with Canaccord uh, Genuity. David, bring in our esteemed guest with a congressional district that speaks of almost the movies as well as the modern tensions of our border. Is he maybe the border congressman? <laughs> I think you could say so. Bill Hurd, uh, Will Hurd, rather. I think uh, so. Congressman for the 23rd Congressional District with stretches from San Antonio to El Paso, right along the, the Texas-Mexico uh, border. He's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. As I mentioned, uh, Jared Kushner, the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, is scheduled to testify before the House Intelligence Committee today. He is somebody with whom... Uh, 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 Jared Kushner will be speaking just a little bit later. But we'll hear it here on our phone lines. Congressman Heard, let me just ask you, first of all, what you're hoping to hear today from uh, from the uh, president's son-in-law and senior uh, advisor. Of course, he testified yesterday, had an interview yesterday before the Senate Intelligence uh, Committee. Is this a formal hearing? What do you intend to hear uh, from the uh, the senior advisor today? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, gentlemen. And and today, I, I think we're, we're, we're interested in hearing a little bit more about um, what he published uh, a few days ago. Mm. Um, in these kinds of investigations, you interview, you cross-examine, you make sure you can corroborate information. Um, understanding plans and intentions before activity is important, and this is going to be done in a bipartisan fashion. And so um, I, I plan to hear a little bit more and unpack some of uh, the points in his, in his letter that he published the other day. Let me just ask you about the the leadership uh, hierarchy, the leadership that uh, of, of the uh, of the House Intelligence Committee. We saw a tweet yesterday in which the president referred to uh, your ranking member as sleazy uh, Adam Schiff. Uh, of course, there's been some controversy surrounding Devin Nunes, the the chairman of the, of the committee. Are you confident in the leadership of the House Intelligence Committee at this point? Um, I, I am. I think, um, and when it comes specifically to the Russia investigation, uh, my fellow Texan uh, Mike Conaway is the person you know calling the shots. 
Um, he and Mr. Schiff have been working in a thorough bipartisan way. We had a little hiccup um, today, or uh, excuse me, yesterday, last night. Uh, we went to pass the intelligence authorization. This basically funds the intelligence community, and it's usually done in, in a, you know, uh, last year it passed overwhelmingly. Um, at markup, this is where you're at the committee, you're adding amendments at the committee. Um, you know, none of my, my friends on the Democratic side of the aisle um, offered, offered amendments. Um, it passed out of committee unanimously, and then uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, put the brakes yeah. on this, and, and this, this, failed, this failed last night. I'm on suspension vote. We'll bring it back up later this week. But this was something that had some of the toughest uh, language and uh, money uh, available to the intelligence community to deal with Russia. Russia is not our, our yeah. ally. They are our adversary. Congressman, you are a fighting Texas Aggie. You served in the CIA. As, Gig'em. As, uh, David. Gig'em. <laughs> I'm sure you go to the Aggie Musters, which is attended by 700,000 people in the 23rd District. Uh, but, but within this is what you need from this president, because you are in the crucible of tight Republican races, 48-49% to win. The, it's, it's a real battle every time a Republican goes out in your district to try try to win. What do you need from President Trump right now? Well, uh, for me, here's the way I look at my race. Um, Hillary Clinton won my district by four points this last election. Um, I always say I, I don't believe in coattails. Um, I have an independent relationship with the folks in my district. I represent 29 counties, two time zones, 820 miles of the border. Yeah, it fabulous. takes 10 and a half hours to drive from one corner to the other at 80 miles What do you need hour, from this president? What do you need from this president besides 14 tweets a day? <laughs> well, look, I, I think a, a focus on, on national security um, when it comes to dealing with things like ISIS, I think this administration um, has done a good job. The, the tough stance um, with North Korea and you know, that being extended um, to, to China and trying to get China well, to do more to tighten, <clears throat> to tighten up um, you know, 90% okay. of, of the economy that, okay. of, of commerce that goes to North Korea okay. comes through China. Congressman, I think that's important. We got to go. We got to get you back on. William Hurt from the 23rd District of Texas. Good morning, College Station, Texas. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Paul Mortimer Lee with us writing really, really sharp notes uh, for BMP Paribas, the ginormous Jagundo French bank. Uh, is is well let's let's focus maybe towards the fed which is do we have any sense paul of gdp recovery are we going into this meeting and the next meeting let me get it up here i can do this quickly on the bloomberg professional service september 20th november 1st december 13th can we get towards three percent gdp or have you just given up I don't think we can get towards 3%. I mean, we haven't done that for a long time on a sustained basis. And now, you know, some firms are finding it difficult to find workers. It's not going to happen, I think, unless there's a productivity explosion. And that doesn't seem likely unless there's a massive increase in investment. Well, so. 
the, the, what, what this goes to, I'm, folks, I've been reading up a storm on this. Wait, you know, thanks, Ken Rogoff, for spurring, spurring me to do this. And the basic idea, Paul, that labor share is part of business revenues has gone down. Is, techno- is technology really what we're talking about here, that technology in all of our, our, our um, daily lives has just diminished the need for labor? Well, it's technology and it's globalization. I think you know we've um, we've seen that there's been a massive addition to the global labor force over the last twenty years, and much less addition to capital. So the relative price of capital and labor have shifted, and it's been a boom time for capital, and uh, for workers, they've seen their share diminish, and uh, I don't think that's going to shift very much. I was reading your most recent note. There's a very vivid image there about Mario Draghi and his speech in Portugal. You said the ECB failed to get the toothpaste back into the tubes. The euro has rallied since then. What have we heard from Mr. Draghi since the market misinterpreted or didn't interpret in line with what he hoped they would, what he had to say there? Did he manage to write the course at the press conference that followed the most recent ECB meeting? No, he didn't. I mean, he tried to be more dovish, but... The thing is that when the European data are coming out so strong, we had EFO this morning from Germany at record levels, then everybody knows that the data are saying you need to tighten monetary policy or take away some of the accommodation. And the words are just delaying that, but the market looks through it and they expect we'll see a shift in policy in September or we think more likely October. And the words are just brushed aside. You highlighted a speech that uh, Lael Brainerd of the, the Fed gave a, a couple of days ago, and you note that she's somebody who thinks uh, a lot about uh, the relationship between the U.S. economy and the global economy. And Tom and I have had a number of discussions about uh, what might happen to the Fed if it becomes more rules-based, uh, etc. If it were to become more rules-based, does that inherently mean that uh, it is less cognizant of, of the global economy? Does it become more domestic-focused if we have a more rules-based Fed? I think it probably would be, wouldn't it? Because, you know, your rules would probably have domestic inflation and domestic unemployment. So you you get some external influence insofar as the external world influenced those things. But in real time, what we got with the judgment-based policy is the policymakers are taking account of that all the time. And so they can react to what's happening in the global economy much quicker. If there was a global financial crisis somewhere else, you could take it into account. If you're rules-based, you'd have to wait until it affected the data, which would mean you'd be slower. The outcomes would be worse. How effectively uh, is the Fed chair making the case for this uh, temporary or transitory uh, inflationary uh, headwind? And I guess uh, part of that is also just how, how long does she have to make that to make that case? How long can something be transitory? Well, you know, I think she was kind of giving up. Uh, uh, <laughs> the white flag raised, at yeah. The, uh, at the Humphrey Hawkins testimony, yeah. she sounded more convinced at the previous press conference. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this time, I think, I think they're rattled. They don't understand it. They're saying it's transitory. But the risk is that they've got particular manifestations of a bigger overall problem. And one of the big problems is competition in retailing. Uh, with bricks and mortars retailers under severe pressure uh, from online retailers, and that's driving prices down. And I think, honestly, I think consumers have got a little bit squeezed, and so to keep volumes going, firms are having to cut prices, and I don't see that going away anytime soon. Are they are they rightfully flummoxed about this? Uh, is this something that they don't understand and other economists don't understand, or is there a blind spot at the Fed? They're unable to see something uh, that other people are. Well, I, I think, to be honest, the models are broken. Mm-hmm. I mean, several years ago, I heard mm-hmm. one European central banker say, the problem is 
central banks don't know what causes inflation anymore. Uh, and I think that's true. But of course, they've got to pretend they do know. It's like the witch doctor. You've got to keep dancing the rain dance, saying the rain's going to come, the rain's going to come, even if you don't believe in it. And the, what, what do the central banks do if they say, oh, we don't know what causes inflation anymore, and they've got inflation targets? So they're in a tough position, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I look, Paul, it, it, the whole mix of this. Are you working with the economics you learned out of a textbook? Mm. Or do you feel like day-to-day at BMP Paribas, not that you're making it up as you go, but that there's not a grounded theory right now? Yeah, there's not a grounded theory. And I think, think, think since the great financial crisis, a lot of relationships have broken. The theory may be there, but the measurement isn't. Lots of relationships have changed in massive, significant ways. The way firms set prices, the way firms hire people. And um, we don't understand it fully. We've not been in this position where the labour market's tight in a changed world ever before. And so we're stumbling in the dark, groping to find something out there to give us a a handle to, to work out how things are going to evolve. I'm not going to put a number of these tweets that we got this morning from the president to you. I won't put you in, the, in that position. But there was a tweet about the, the meeting yesterday about an, uh, a U.S.-U.K. trade deal. The, the beginnings of that negotiation started, I believe, in Washington uh, yesterday. What's that going to tell us about uh, trade policy here in the U.S. and trade policy in the U.K. as well? Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes. I think it's, it's difficult. I think many people in the U.K. think it's difficult for the U.K. to agree trade deals with people outside Europe until they've got a trade deal with Europe. Because a lot it will affect how how trade evolves between UK and the third country, and so I, I think we'll make slow progress on that um, as we make slow progress on Brexit. Basically, how much of a, a complicating factor is that, as you forecast? for the U.S. economy and the global economy as well, not knowing exactly what the the trade policy is or how that's going to change things? Yeah, well, it's difficult. I think we were more worried at the beginning of the Trump presidency. The rhetoric was hotter. The rhetoric was hotter. It seemed more likely we might get a clash with China. And I think we'll get um, uh, maybe instances in particular sectors, but nothing that's broad-based. And, of course, the, the fact that the dollar's softening and that U.S. manufacturing is doing pretty well, is taking off that pressure. And when you mentioned Lille Brainard, one of the things she mentioned was that the exchange rate is much less sensitive to long rates than to short rates. Mm -hmm. That may be behind, in my view, why they want to do the balance Um, sheet. Paul, thank you so much. Paul Mortimerly, PMB Perry Bond. Timothy John Ryan is in, what's great about interviewing Congress people is they're all from remarkably different districts. His district stretches from Youngstown over to Akron. It's the backbone of what used to be in Ohio and what is for the new Ohio, the 13th congressional uh, district. Congressman Ryan, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, a kid in my daughter's high school class died three days ago of opioids. How bad is it? Senator Portman has provided leadership on this. How bad is opioids and heroin in the 13th congressional district? Well, unfortunately, we hear those stories every single day and, you know, it never gets easy. And, you know, we we lost a friend a couple weeks ago who battled it on and off, even kind of recovered and started uh, running rehab facilities, and we thought he was out of the woods, and and then uh, you know it just it's it just 
It always catches up with you. It's happening all the time. Uh, and, you know, we've got a lot of work to do in Ohio and New Hampshire and some of these other states that are yeah. really, really feeling it. What religion do you need to get from your president your Senate and Speaker Ryan, not you, in the House. What's the leadership you need to get the heroin opioid epidemic going in the right direction? Well, I, I think it's got to be a lot of things, and it's got to be a multi-pronged effort. And, you know, throwing people off of their, their health care, their Medicaid is not a really good start. I mean, we've talked to so many people who, if they didn't have the Medicaid expansion and, and the uh, treatment that comes with that, that they would certainly, and then they tell, they'll look us right in the eye and tell us this, they'll die. You know, they'll they'll you know, go right back to doing what they're doing. They need that treatment. And so that's a terrible way to go about it. But I think it's multi-pronged. I mean, and it starts with, you know, making sure that, that the prescriptions that are being issued aren't done unnecessarily. You know, we saw in West Virginia where, you know, every person in the state could get, you know, 30 or 60 uh, pills. Um, you know, that's ridiculous, knowing that the pharmaceutical companies know that they're making profits in these areas and know that not that many people need them. That's one start. Treatment's another start. And then making sure that there's some hope in the economy, quite frankly. I mean, you know, we need to grow the economy. We need opportunity for middle-class people. We need after-school programs and summer school programs for kids uh, and, and further education on how addictive this is. You know, I tell my kids, I grew up in the 90s, I said, this is not smoking a joint. I mean, this is the kind of straight talk I think we need to have with our kids. This isn't smoking a joint. This isn't sneaking a can of beer. This is something you do one time. It it can a it can kill you, but b it can get you so highly addicted it'll ruin the rest of your life. And so I think there mm. needs to be a lot of straight talk with our kids about what they're getting into if they even try this stuff, and continue those programs, those treatment programs. And we got to get some money into it. I mean, we we passed the CARA bill, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, here in Congress, we put a little bit of money behind it, but quite frankly, a billion dollars here, a billion dollars there, when you right. divide it by 50 states and 88 counties in Ohio, it's nothing. Yeah, and we need to really yeah. address this for what it is, and that's a national yeah. epidemic. David, jump in here. Yeah, we're talking with Congressman Tim Ryan of the 13th District in Ohio, the co-chairman of the Addiction Treatment and Recovery Caucus. He's on our phone lines. Let me change directions here and ask you a bit about parliamentary procedure. You were political science major at Bowling Green State University. You know a little bit about it. Uh, a lot of people are watching what's happening in the Senate today and wondering, I think, uh, how how untraditional this is. You, you have a vote here uh, <laughs> on, on a, a, a procedural <laughs> vote here on a piece of legislation that none of them have seen. How rare is that? What does that say about the state of our legislator, leg, legislature uh, today? Well, it, I think it, it, it speaks to the, the level of difficulty that um, you know the Republicans are having right now trying to get any consensus on a health care bill to the point where they can't even show it to you. And the fact that they're able to whip enough votes, I'm assuming if John McCain's coming into town to vote for this, that they have enough votes to get it passed. Um, but it, it's, a, it's certainly a sign of the times, and these were all the same folks who were saying that the Democrats didn't read the bill or we didn't hold hearings. We held dozens of hearings on the, on the health care bill before we passed it. We had tons of public discussion, tons of town hall meetings, and I think Democrats that were in all have the scars to prove it from back then <laughs> that we had a very public discussion about this stuff. You may not have liked it, but we did have a public discussion. Mm. And I think just the lack of transparency and jamming this stuff through 
is a sign of the the political times that there is no real seriousness within the Republican Party as far as what they want to accomplish. That's the main issue well, what, here. What do you say to the, the constituent from Akron or Youngstown who comes to you and says, look, I've been listening to the president, I've been listening to the Republican leadership, and what I hear from them is that Democrats are not willing to engage on the issues and on health care uh, in particular. Uh, yes, there's the chaos unfolding here in the Senate. Uh, you can attribute that in part to the, to the Republican Party. But do you think Democrats have done enough to be uh, a collaborative, collegial with, uh, with Republican colleagues? Well, I've heard Senator Schumer uh, reach his hand out and say, okay, what can we do together? I, I know that the uh, new Democrats uh, in the House provided a number of different fixes that they would be willing to sit down and talk about uh, here in the House of Representatives. That's something that I support, being pretty straightforward, saying, okay, there are fixes. Obamacare is not perfect. Let's fix the problems. So there have been a couple of initiatives in both, I think, the House and the Senate to try to engage the Republicans in in that regard. But the bottom line is we've got to figure out what are the goals here. I think we've got to get clarity before you go into the <clears throat> negotiation say, what do you yeah. want, what do we want? We were clear. We wanted more coverage, more accessibility, and more protections from the insurance industry. And through that, we got yeah. the Affordable Care Act, and we passed it. We covered 20 million more people. Now, by all accounts, the Republican bills in both the House and the Senate throw 22 million people off of their health care and increase premiums for right. seniors. So what's your goal? Is your goal to cover more people or cover less people? <laughs> you know, yeah. so if you don't get clarity on the goals before you go into negotiation, you're not going to have a very good negotiation. Congressman, a rude question, and it's not about the Cleveland Browns. We're not going there. We're not going there. One of the trends that we are seeing here among the qualified people that we speak to, and I say that with great respect, it's early. Is your party setting up to lose the House? You win nicely 67, 68% of the vote in the 13th congressional district. But is there an urgency that your supermajority in Washington just may mess this up enough to give up the House? I know it's an early question, but is it in the back of your mind? Is it is it something that you talk about over a beverage of your choice at the Trump bar? <laughs> Boy, you're hitting all my sweet spots here. Uh, you know, the Cleveland Browns, beverage of choice. I mean, you got me nailed here, buddy. Uh, listen, I am concerned that we are not, even after Monday, we are not clear on how the Democrats are better to grow the economy. And I think at the end of the day, whether you're talking about opiates, education, you know, the economy, health care, anything else, the idea of we've got to be the party of growth and opportunity. We can't be the party that's hostile to business, and you know that, too. You've got to help businesses grow, and sometimes that takes public-private partnerships. Sometimes that does take a lower corporate tax rate in order for our small businesses to be able to compete and compete globally if they need to. There's no there's no growth aspect to what we're doing. I mean, I just think you can't muddle together a bunch of tax credits and infrastructure spending and call that an aspirational growth program. It's very transactional, and so it's a step in the right direction. But I really think we've got to develop some credibility and some trust with the American people that we know how to get them back to work and get their wages okay. up. And, and I, don't, I don't think we're there yet. I think Monday was a step in the right direction. Right. But we've got a long way to go. Now, don't be a stranger. Call Rich us again when the Browns win two yeah. games in a row. <laughs> Timothy Ryan, Tim John Ryan, he is 
the congressman for the 13th congressional district in Ohio. Uh, David, I love when we do this. Yeah. I love when we do Democrat, Republican, Texas, the middle of nowhere in Texas versus the backbone of Ohio and old manufacturing. And there's a flavor that I I must confess I prefer to talking to a a congressman than a senator. I think that, uh, you know, you get somebody who – Generally speaking, seems to be more in touch with what is a smaller constituency yeah. than the than the well, senators are. So you know, they that's, got, that's the nature of the beast. They I got suppose. the sweat of they got every twenty four months. They get to get back find out, out how much in love their constituents exactly. are with them. That was great. Thanks to our team for Mr. Hurd and Mr. Ryan. That was really wonderful. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch. With virtual reality, virtually everything will change. Discover opportunities in a transforming world. B of AML.com slash VR. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated.